welcome to the Sur- Ser- Serengeti. We're your host, David Swinger and Matt Kinner. So what you're doing is subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Did you hear that President Biden just issued an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence? I did. We're all better off, I'm sure. Hey, I wish he'd start with safe, secure, and trustworthy government. Just as an FYI to those listening, we're going to do some modification on this, but we are recording again in a restaurant, and there's a lot of background noise, so we'll see how well this goes. This one, I feel like this background noise is a little more challenging, because beforehand we did it outside, yeah. and there was the music playing, but there wasn't much conversation in the right. background. So, it's not, terribly busy. Noise. Yeah, it's not terribly busy. I do feel like they turned the music on. Like, when I walked in the door, I was like, oh, the music's pretty quiet. This isn't going to be too bad at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, that wouldn't be consistent. All right, so the first article is that SEC charges solar winds and chief information security officer with fraud and internal controls failure. Shocking. And we got this from the SEC directly. They have a press release out. So last November in episode 86, we discussed the Wells notice that the SEC issued to solar winds. And then in this past July, in episode 118, we talked about the second wellness notice that they issued to the executives versus the company. And most of what we're going to talk about um, is from this press release, but the full complaint will be in the show notes. And if we were to go through the complaint, complaint we would probably take a half a dozen episodes to discuss the full thing and all the evidence. We should have done that. We should have done that for the next six episodes. Oh, that, would be a, that would be a good cop-out. <laughs> Hey, for the next episodes, we're going to be talking about this one thing. So stay tuned. And we can leave it off with a cliffhanger each week. So you just couldn't wait for the next one. I, I was listening to some podcasts that were talking about the Trump trials. And they ended up doing that. They ended up like diving super deep into each and every one. I was like, oh my God, it was so boring. <laughs> Deleted them all. Unsubscribed to every one of them. No, you just want the highlights because of the circus. You know? Much like the SEC. Oh, no kidding. Um, so the SEC has filed this complaint in the Southern District of New York charging SolarWinds Corporation and its uh, CISO, Timothy Brown, for fraud and internal controls failure relating to allegedly known cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities. And this is presumably related to the 2019-2020 hack, but it doesn't specifically say it. All right, question on that one. Why the CISO and not the CEO? Or why not both of them? Well, what, if you read through the complaint, I'm not sure if it's they didn't find documentation in what they collected from the, that he told the CEO. Well, see, the, well, if you read through the complaint, a lot of things that they cite in there are documentation produced by the CISO and his office. Oh, okay. So I think that might be where they're focusing on, in on it. And also, you know, you don't charge C- CEOs. Just, it, you think it's simply not done. You'd think the CISO would be high enough that they would find somebody lower than you to throw under the bus. Well, if you think about it, as far as, you know, the CEO is ultimately responsible for the entire company, ultimately they both really should have been charged. Because the CEO signs off on everything the CISO does in their filing statements, 
in all their uh, financial documentation, yeah, all their security documentation. That's all ultimately signed off on by the CEO. So they really, sh I mean, if they were being honest, honest <laughs> they would have charged both of them. Uh, but I think this whole thing is really a witch hunt because the government got caught with their fans sound as so, part of this. So I guess what this says to me is that despite the C and the name, the CISO is not actually a chief anything. Because if they were a chief, they wouldn't be charged. They're still a sacrificial lamb. What are the peons? Well, they have to make somebody. I, I guess they have to pick somebody. Yeah. And they couldn't pick the CEO. So I think they were just the next closest thing. No, you're right. Because it, yeah, it has to be high enough to satisfy people and for the shareholders to go, yes, somebody with responsibility was punished. Yeah, and he's got security in his they, name. Yeah, and if they throw like a senior engineer under the bus, people would be like, schmuck. What are you? What are you doing with this guy? Yeah. All right. That's fair. Yeah. Well, not really. But anyway. So, specifically, the SEC is charging them under the anti-fraud provisions of the Securities Act of 30, 1933, the Security Exchange Acts of 1934, and, violated, and that they violated reporting and internal controls provisions in the Exchange Act. No year associated with that one. I guess that's just in perpetuity. <laughs> of forever. <laughs> the Exchange Act of forever. Yeah, exactly. So... They claim that Brown was aware of the SolarWinds security risks and vulnerabilities, but failed to, one, resolve the issues, or at times sufficiently raise them further within the company. So the company, and because he failed to do that, the company could not reasonably issue assurances that their most valuable assets were adequately protected. So, so what it sounds like is Brown was... Unable to sufficiently justify the expenses needed to improve security to the CEO or the board. Which does make him a mediocre CISO. It's like right. one job of a CISO is <laughs> getting yeah. more funding. So being, so being unpersuasive as a CISO <laughs> is now criminal. It is fireable. I mean, well, like, sure, but not criminal. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference between those two things. You know, and that's true, because a persuasive CISO would have convinced the CEO to... Put it all on the CFO. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The CFO signed up on the quarterly filings. It's not my fault. I told him. I told him. But so government government stooge Gurmbrol Gurwal, who's the director of the SEC uh, Division of Enforcement, said, and, and I quote. We allege that for years, SolarWinds and Brown ignored repeated red flags about SolarWinds cyber risks, which were well known throughout the company and led to one of Brown's subordinates to conclude, uh, double quote, we're so far from being a security-minded company. So rather than address these vulnerabilities, SolarWinds and Brown engaged in a campaign to paint a false picture of the company's cybersecurity controls environment, thereby depriving investors of accurate material information. Today's enforcement action not only charges SolarWinds and Brown for misleading the investing public and failing to protect the company's Brown Jewel assets, but also underscores our message to issuers, implement strong controls calibrated to your risk environments and level with investors about, your, about known concerns. How do they know what SolarWinds risk environment was? Maybe the people that are making the decisions were all idiots and just wrong about their level of risk. 
<laughs> what the SEC is, is saying here is that we are the ultimate arbitrators of what of what you're at risk. Not the company. Yeah. So we will decide if you've adequately addressed the risks for your company or not. I mean, and if you actually dig into the 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 complaint, the full quote from the from the manager relating to that we we are far from being security minded was in an instant message in October of 2020, a senior infosec manager said, we're so far from being a security-minded company, every time I hear about our head geeks talking about security, I want to throw up. And that was a direct quote in the complaint. Can you imagine that being being that information security manager and seeing your quote show up in the filing and being like, shit. <laughs> oh, right. boy. But how many times have, have, have we, uh, anybody in security expressed a similar complaint? Their verb, well... Proverbally, just verbally, versus in, in in writing. I mean, so the instant messenger thing, especially. I uh, now this has never happened at a company that I've ever worked at. <laughs> Thankfully, theoretically, you could have a back channel chat going on whenever senior leadership is making announcements, but people are commenting on the announcements of the rating. <laughs> That would never happen in any company that I've ever been at, but or any company. Or any company you, ever. No, I've never been in a meeting where people are texting during the meeting. That's evidence. It's all that. And the SEC goes on to say that the form 8K was drafted by a group of executives, including Brown, and signed by SolarWinds CEO. Well, there uh, we go. There, you know what we were just talking about a second ago that the Form 8K was materially misleading in several respects, including its failure to disclose that the vulnerability at issue had been actively exploited against the SolarWinds customer multiple times over at least six-month period in the incident, in the instance involving. And that's, so that I got that quote from RS Technica. So is that the six months before the disclosure in December? Are they talking about like July through December 2020? Well, I think that's, that is the compromise period. Um, so that 8K was during was issued during the period in which case it would they would be that six month period they were being exploited. Well, we'll actually get to that later. Okay. But you see that the timeline, it, what the SEC is is talking about for the timeline is ridiculous. So this is the CEO signed this, but when asked about it later, he said he could not recall where he was <laughs> on the day when this was signed. Is this or the, is this not your signature? I don't recall. <laughs> it's not recall. But. I'm just, this blows me away, though, that th this this indictment. But first, before we, we're getting to, you know, my issues with this whole thing, we'll we'll go through some of the reasoning, if that's what you want to call it, from the SEC um, about why this is being filed. The SEC says from its October 2018 initial public offer through at least December 2020, which is when that, the hack was brought to light, SolarWinds and Brown defrauded investors by overstating SolarWinds cybersecurity practices, understating or failing to disclose known risks. And they did this in its filings with the SEC. And SolarWinds only disclosed generic and hypothetical risks when the company and Brown knew specific cybersecurity deficiencies, increasingly elevated the risks of the company at the same time. And SolarWinds public statements about cybersecurity practice and risks were at odds with its internal assessment. So 
when are, when have companies been required to divulge internal assessments about risks? Like, do they make them divulge internal assessments about, you know, market risks due to other companies doing stuff, or is it only cybersecurity stuff? I don't think they're obligated to. I think you, that stuff comes out when there's a when there's a compromise because we talked about this before about what's discoverable and what's not discoverable is in lawsuits that come out from compromises. Seen that before, but not in just regular organizational reporting. You know. So in the SEC's evidence, they they cite a 2018 presentation prepared by a company engineer and shared internally with Brown that SolarWinds' remote access setup was not very, quote, not very secure, and that someone hypothetically exploiting the vulnerability could basically do whatever they wanted without us detecting it until it's too late, which could lead to major reputational and financial loss. Yeah. I wonder what this presentation was. It's like shared internally. Does that mean it was a presentation to the CISO or was this like a pen test after action report or like how high up did this go? I'm not sure. I don't really say. Uh, but also one thing that the thing is that when, when you have, so a network engineer said this, you know, he could have been overstating the risk in order to get funding for the organization or, or for his team or something like that. I'm not saying he did, yeah, yeah. but I'm saying, uh, but also in context of we don't know what that what that vulnerability was and what it would take to repair it. You know? This only looks prophetic now because something happened in 2018. If nothing had happened, then the guy would have been totally wrong. Also in 2018, a presentation that, that Brown created stated Currently, the state of security leaves us in a very vulnerable state for our critical assets. And then in 2019, another presentation by Brown said, access and privilege to critical system data is inappropriate. This sounds like a CISO arguing for more money. Yeah, it's a budget pitch. <laughs> and Brown also wrote in an internal communication that it was, quote, very concerning, unquote, that the attacker may have been looking to use SolarWinds Orion software in larger attacks because our backends are not that resilient. And I'm not sure where the CISO got the information from that attackers were looking to use the Orion software. It, you know, Res Intel. Well, did this come out after the hack, though? Uh, maybe it got picked up on a dark web forum after, like, they were already... I, I don't know. Uh, but, see, the thing is, all these things are also completely out of context. So it's hard to really frame wh uh, what's going on. What does resilient mean? They could have been talking about like DR. Well, resilient. Like backup. The thing is, I mean, how often do you refer to an insecurity as not being resilient? Yeah, that, you know, that seems like they could DDoS it or something. Right. You, could, you can't recover from it or something like that. And it's, resiliency doesn't prevent attacks. So it's not a preventative measure that he's saying was not uh, present. Also, and then in September of 2020, an internal document shared with Brown and and others stated, quote, the volume of security issues being identified over the last month have outstripped the capacity of engineering teams to resolve. That's every company I've ever been in. Every vulnerability management program produces more vulnerabilities than you can resolve. You have to prioritize right. that and fix the most important ones. Yep. Exactly. So one of the things I know that's been going around for the past five years has been don't say breach, even joking. If you say breach and the lawyers get a hold of it, 
They can say you knew at X time and you should have reported it 72 hours later. And this is giving me kind of similar vibes to that. Like, does this mean every pen test must be reported? Because a pen test gives you specific vulnerabilities. Does the SEC now want you to report all of those? I mean, how much detail? Yeah. Yeah, because they gained generic vulnerabilities and they said that was wrong. So they want more specific stuff. Do you have to, like... This system they were able to break into with a brute force attack. <laughs> what is very specific? And uh, then when Edgar gets hacked again, Edgar's <laughs> will have all that. Well, they don't even have to have the the thing with hacking Edgar is that just gets it early. Everything goes into Edgar because it's going to be public record. Wow. So the hackers would just have to wait for that stuff to be published. So, and what if an engineer says everything sucks, it can be broken into, and an attacker just happens to break in due to the, ne the next month due to something unrelated, like some zero day or a new vulnerability that's introduced, and now the engineer looks prophetic, and they can be like, well, he said you were going to get broken into. Yeah, but they broke in because of this wildly different thing. Is Well, I mean, if you talk to any security engineer, though, they're going to say, hey, we're f yeah, because they know what is, what's all available on the inside. They know all the ways to get around it. Right. That's their job. This is going to end up with leadership forcibly shutting up people who say something's wrong with the security setup. Because if they're correct or not, it's going to lead to liability. So. Well, I'm wondering if you're not going to also have internal monitoring of internal communication by insider threat teams. Not necessarily looking for insider threat, though, but looking for, hey, you can't say this because this is discoverable. And they're going to have to retrain everybody oh my God. to not, it, it's kind of like Wesley Snipes' lawyer Barnes. I forget what his first name is right now. Oh, for the IRS stuff? Yeah. He has a saying. Never in writing, always in cash. Never in writing? Never in writing, always in cash. <laughs> and this is what this reminds me of is like, you can complain about the challenges that you're facing from a security perspective all day long you want verbally. Yeah. But don't ever send it in an email and don't ever send it in chat. Because it now is going to become discoverable should anything happen whatsoever. Yeah. And the SEC is going to go back through that and find all the times the security guy complained about the challenges they're facing in security and use that to throw people in jail. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to go back to work tomorrow and I'm just going to start typing in. It's <laughs> like... Oh, that VPN. <laughs> Better watch out. Oh, those web servers, they're not patched. <laughs> Just all the various things. Oh, what you do is you write up the document and say, I was about to take it to your boss. Say, I was about ready to send this in text, but I wasn't going to. But you know, my review's coming up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is just horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the warnings against reputation loss and the breach thing is a big part of any CISO's playbook to try and convince the board they need more money. So a lot of some of those quotes I saw seemed like they were probably just presentations by Brown for arguments for more money to fund them. Uh, does that mean the board should be held responsible or whoever he gave those presentations to? It might be the C-level, might be the board. Well, you know, along that whole thing about culpability and responsibility, if he wasn't convincing but still told them the problem was but didn't convince them, well, that means that they were also told of the problem and yet didn't think it was bad enough that they should give him money to fix the problem you know, or, or allocate resources to fix the problem. Because, you know, it's like you said at the very beginning, who is ultimately really responsible 
when the when when the buck stops is the board is the ceo or is it CISO who's really halfway down the chain because he was unconvincing yeah so the sec uh, and this is going to get into the timeline i was talking about here the sec release goes on to say that solar winds made an incomplete disclosure about the sunburst attack in a december 14 2020 8k filing so that's the 8k filing for before following which its stock price dropped approximately 25% over the next two days and approximately 35% over the, by the end of the month. Now, you know what happened on December 12th is when Mandiant notified SolarWinds of the hack. And they filed this 8K two days later. So an SEC is saying that in two days, they should have figured it all out. They should have had it all figured out and reported everything complete. As far as what went down. And when I looked up on Yahoo, the stock prices, on the 7th of December, the stock price was $24.84. On the 14th, it was $14.96. What is a drop of 40%. And by the end of the month, on the 28th, it was $15.77, which is a 37% drop, which is close to the numbers that they gave before. That's down even more now? And on the date of the press release, it was $10.50. Poof. Now, on, in the Washington Post on December 60, uh, the Washington Pro Post is quoted as saying, investors in breach solar winds firm so solar investors in breach software firm SolarWinds traded $288 million in stock days before the reveal. Is that more or less than normal? I, mean, I need to see what the normal volume is to tell if that's insiders dumping stock or anything. Well, it was... So if you look at, uh, there was an, another financial app that I looked at, which had the numbers were different. But if you're able to see between the 7th and the 14th, that was not, didn't all happen on the 14th. There was a drop on the 10th and days before the 14th when the, when the 8K filing was released. So the Washington Post believes that there is a high probability that People were aware of what they were going to say in that 8K filings of the breach before it happened. And who knows where that came from? Because at Mandiant, may have, there could have been people at Mandiant that didn't necessarily leak it purposefully or whatever. To someone they else. called up their friend and were like, hey, oh, you've been talking about SolarWinds. I think you should sell your stock. Well, I'm not saying that happened necessarily either. But just the fact that Mandiant knew means there's probably hundreds of other people that knew that were in SolarWinds that knew. And that could have just found found its way through the rumor mill yeah. and 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 fell out. That's very. Uh, see the swung. Someone made like twenty million dollars in like puts or calls the day before Splunk announced that they were bought by Cisco. Uh, Cisco. Someone so wow. Someone bought like thousands of dollars of calls that the Splunk stock was going to rise like three or four dollars the next day or something like that. And they, Cisco announced they were buying them for a price, and the stock went up, and they sold their calls and made $20 million. Wow. That's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm sure that it was totally above board. And Hey, I think insider training is bullshit anyway. It's a signal that needs to be incorporated into the market. Yeah. But in the Washington Post article, Jennifer Lee, a former assistant director in the SEC's enforcement division, claims that this complaint in the SEC has done three firsts according to her the first one being is the first time an sec cyber case that has the com that 
the commission has alleged that an organization intended to deceive investors. It's the first five SEC cyber case that the commission has brought an action against an individual. And it's the first time an SEC cyber case that the commission has alleged that a company had failures in its internal controls for safeguarding itself. Now, in, a, in an Associated Reuters article, um, they said the lawsuit appears to be the first time also that ACC has sued a company that has been the victim of a cyber attack and rather than charging and simultaneously settling the complaint. Yeah. We already talked about who should be held responsible, but now I'm curious instead about who should be holding them responsible. Is it really the SEC's job to hold them responsible or is that the shareholder's job or the customer's job to hold them responsible by no longer buying their product? Well, or no that's longer why it's not shopped is because they didn't think that was responsible. Yeah, they took a 60% haircut in the value of their company. That's a pretty big slap on the wrist. Yeah, I mean, the market takes care of this. You don't need the government to step in for it. All those sea levels lost millions and millions of dollars. There is a stock option. Yeah, that's a good point, too. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's just evaporated into nothing. Yeah, <laughs> missed it away. Oh, God, that brings a smile to my face. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of those things where this, the whole the pain in stock, you know, we talked about this when we were talking about CEO, CEO compensation. It's one of, the, one of the times where it comes around and bites them in the ass. Yeah. But this is actually one of the unique times, though, because if we go back to Sony and Target, oh, yeah, yeah, they you know, all those things balance. rebound, but this not this one. Is it just because it was so badly, or because it like only does one thing, and that no, one I, thing was well, optimized? Well, I think there's, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, the government was hugely invested in the, in this company, mm-hmm. and after this happened, the government dumped them like a hot potato. Oh, so it's a major customer gone, right? And a lot of co- a lot of other companies were looking to see what the government reaction was going to be, and also dumped them based on the government's reaction. That's right. That's one. And two, I think you and I may have talked about this before, is if the the ultimate capital for the company is its software, and if the software can't be trusted, that devalues the capital stock of the company. And the downsides of being a purely sub, yeah, because Target is still in stores, they sell merchandise. Right. The hack didn't really change their ability to deliver goods to end users. Right, so I think those two things are probably the primary reason that SolarWinds took such damage during for this hack interesting but this whole thing is huge it's well when i was saying it's donald trump huge huge, huge. <laughs> like his hands <laughs> like michelle obama's hand <laughs> i'll just see them arm wrestle <laughs> just, and to like wrap around his tiny little meds <laughs> He crushes him. <laughs> Breaks this forearm and just. <laughs> I don't think that'd be a win for either one of them. <laughs> oh, oh man, that's, whew, that's too funny. <laughs> uh, but can any organization really afford not to be begging its public filings? Though, no, they could basically atta- end up telling attackers where to come and attack them at. Yeah. Uh, even if they were not vain, uh, would that de- actually deter investment by having this stuff in the in the in the filings or not? I hope this does not lead to is the, is if organizations do an assessment against NIST, having to publish that assessment 
uh, in their filings then to say, hey, in this area of the NIST, we're at 10 out of 10 out of 30 or whatever. I mean, that could be damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like, yeah. if you publish it, they're going to come knock on your door exactly how you told right. them to. And if you don't do it, the SEC gets to come back later and be like, you didn't tell us. Yeah. And I think this may also have companies shy away from doing, unless they're required to, doing assessments at all because that's then discoverable by the um, for any time they want to come after them. Uh, now, when you consider the statements by the SEC saying that these were materially misleading, consider how your organization discusses the following items and how well your organization is doing on them. Because in the formal complaint, it quotes Solon with the saying, following a secure, de- a secure development lifecycle, an SDLC, have and enforce complex passwords, have good access controls, follow NIST standards, and remediate vulnerabilities that are, that are found. This is, this is the same discussion we had about cyber insurance, where what if you have complex passwords across 90% of your systems, and the bad guys just found one where you didn't. Like, are they, are they going to come in and be like, well, you said you had complex passwords, but you obviously didn't because they got in with one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, exactly. It's the same luggage code I have on my luggage, goddammit. <laughs> the thing is, uh, uh, you know, the, all these things that I just listed, passwords, access controls, uh, vulnerability management, no company does these things perfectly. Because they're, they're, they're environments are too complex. It's yeah. hard. And if SE's going to say, well, if you fail at these doing these things perfectly, according to what we assess your risk to be, then, you know, we're going to start charging your executives and your company. It's just ridiculous. And what's interesting about these two is none of these are really security things. Like, these are all IT hygiene things. We've talked about this before. How security is kind of just a patch over the top of bad IT practices. And this looks like more of the same. None of the things they mention here are actually... I mean, secure development lifecycle, that's application security, but the other things aren't really security items. But he failed to convince IT to do those things. <laughs> it's all on him. <laughs> yeah, why is it the CIO or the CTO? They should be included in this. Now, listen, listen to this exchange and tell me if you've ever had a similar exchange with your boss or someone else in the company. Employee, I hope you have a good time off and we'll try to man, and I will try to man the fort. Boss, more like keep the house from burning down, lol. <laughs> Employee, hard with all these faulty electrics. That's like blackmail. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, uh, bad. Yeah, I guarantee it's sarcastic back and forth. Yeah. And virtually every security person that I know has had a similar conversation. No, whenever, whenever one of our people goes out on vacation or something, it's like, you guys have fun. You know, don't let anything happen without me. Oh, yeah. You know, such and such. Klopp's going to come through this weekend or clean us out or... Right. I mean, this is standard banter yeah. between professionals, and yet they, they quoted that in the SEC complaint. Now, if you read through the complaint, it seems like they're relying a lot on statements from employees about what's wrong with security with the de- uh, without details, specific issues, and what it would take to re- remediate them, you know. And security people are notoriously doom and gloom people anyway and the sky is always falling um so because they don't go get into what were the priorities for the security team you know what were the projects they were doing to, to improve the security imagine if they had active projects for each of these things right and what was the progress on those projects i mean no organization does everything we talked about perfectly but i think this whole thing brings up that you need i i think at a minimum you need to make sure that your executive team is aware of this lawsuit 
because I think this has big implications for the whole everybody going forward. And, and I think you should also talk to your legal team, make sure they read through the complaint. And I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence about whether you should talk to the auditors, but because I think the legal team may end up talking to the auditors about this anyway. But there are serious implications here about internal assessments and communications that relate to this. And you should talk to, you know, we've talked to, I couldn't find the, the actual episode number where we talked about this before, but we've discussed the legal aspects and uh, from the lawyers about protecting assessments from discovery before. So talk to your your legal team about that because we talked about external counsel and yeah. things like that. We talked about using a lawyer to run IR because yeah. therefore it's all under privilege and yeah. yeah. Yeah, so talk to your legal team about that also because I think this, like I said, I think this lawsuit is going to be huge. Yeah, well, lawsuit. This, this criminal action or whatever for the SEC is going to have huge ramifications if they're successful. Hopefully they aren't, but I'm not, not optimistic. Yeah. All right. So we're going to skip the second article we had here, Frameworks for DE-Friendly CTI. We will talk about it next week. We are running short on time because there's a ton of stuff to discuss for the other two articles. Third article that we had today is related to the AI announcement from President Biden, issues executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence. David did the majority of the research here, but I'm going to read it and therefore claim credit for all of this. <laughs> but I just want to say up front, I'm thankful. God, the president is going to save us from AI killing us all. Uh, the glory of it. I've been, I've been praised by it. I've been on the edge ever since I heard about AI and waiting for Biden to do something to protect me. Yeah, we, uh, we were going to reveal the whole thing, but then I uh, saw that this is 63 pages. <laughs> I was like, never mind. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty big. Yeah, but every pretty, it seems like every podcast I've listened to this week has talked about it. So I heard a bunch of points from various sizes, but all right. From the fact sheet, quote, President Biden is issuing a landmark executive order to ensure that America leads the way in seizing the promise and managing the risks of artificial intelligence. Parentheses. AI. Parentheses. <laughs> the executive order establishes new standards for AI safety and security, protects Americans' privacy, advances equity and civil rights, stands up for consumers and workers, promotes innovation and competition, advances American leadership around the world. And more. And more. <laughs> so, discussion points. We're already like 30 minutes into this episode, and or 40 minutes into this episode, so we're not going to go through the whole thing. It's big. It's 63 pages. Uh, David thinks most of it is unconstitutional. Uh, Surprise. And he's not wrong. I heard the Lawfare podcast say the same thing the other day. So, the legislative branch is supposed to be writing the laws, not the executive branch. Weird. Yeah. It, it's in the f name. <laughs> in the <laughs> so we'll just touch on kind of one item in the sections and honestly in about 15 minutes we'll just stop wherever we stop but the first ones are going to round safety and security so that's the your best place to start so they're going to require the first one is they're going to require that developers of the most powerful ai systems share their safety test results and other critical information with the u.s government and they invoke the defense production act and they say that anything that poses a risk to national security National economic security, national public health and safety must notify the government when training the model and share the results of all red team safety tests. And of course, this is going to ensure that everything is safe. Safe, safe, safe. So actually, what I found interesting here, 
most interesting to myself is the arbitrary line they drew. I'm actually going to skip a couple and go down here. So the government limit is 10 to the 26 power flops. Do you know what ChatGPT4 is right now? 10 to the 25th power flops. So basically anything more powerful than ChatGPT4 falls under this. That's kind of a suspicious number. Weirdly suspicious, although maybe they were like, ChatGPT4 is not that good, so anything better than that shouldn't count. I don't know. Well, I think they may have said that because they're like, okay, well, we're only going to do this for anything going forward. Maybe. And yeah, just, just let whatever is out there is just going to run. That could be. Uh, There's someone named at Near Cyan who did some calculations and found that this would be models that cost more than $50 million to train on in today's dollars on today's hardware. Now, the thing about hardware and costs is that costs continuously go down and hardware continuously improves. But did you know that the modern iPhone can do 11 teraflops, according to Apple? In 2009, this would have put it on the list of top 500 supercomputers. And it would have been the most powerful computer in the world in 2002. Oh, holy cow, that's crazy. Yeah. So just think, in 20 more years, our AIs on our phones. Actually, less than that, I was thinking. So I did some quick back of the envelope math, and I don't think an iPhone will hit it in 10 years. Time magazine put together a chart and had a logarithmic chart where it started at the bottom at 100 teraflops, and at the top it hit 10 to the 26. And it plotted every single LLM available right now. Mm -hmm. The least powerful of them were about 100 teraflops. So now if you assume that Moore's Limit will still a thing, doubling in power every two years, apparently there's a thought of phasing it. Well, it's changed to two years now because yeah. they've started to hit limits on miniaturization. Well, I think what they're running into now is physics. Probably. Yeah, like yeah. Like, yeah. But if you, let's say we assume it, in 10 years, that iPhone will be powerful enough to train one of those lower level because it's 11 now. So double in two years, it'll be 22. In four years, it'll be 44, 88, 176, 352. So it'll be, if the lowest LLMs require 100 teraflops, it'll be able to train an AI on that. So and not just run the AI, but like train it. So yeah, so in 10 years, I believe that we're going to have iPhones that are going to be running, like training our own iPhone, our own, I'm sorry, our own AIs. Yeah, so you could run it on the iPhone, but you couldn't store the data necessary for the back-end references, though, right? Just Yeah, because there's a different law that governs storage. It doesn't double every 24 months. It's something else, right? I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. But the current predictions are that Moore's Law will be obsolete in 20, 2036 due to limits of miniaturization. But by then, maybe AI will have guided us to a completely different architecture. Maybe we'll store right. data on cat brains or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if they get around to holographic storage and crystal storage by then, DNA storage. I'm not sure about DNA storage, but I mean, years ago, I, unfortunately, because this, I just thought of this now and versus having prepared for this, but when I was researching holographic storage, it's like 10 times or more wow. storage in, I think it was something like, man, I want to say it was like a petabyte in a cubic inch of... Holographic storage we did something get like that. Arab. You can get 512 gig SD cards now. I don't know if you can get terabyte SD cards, but... No, petabytes. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like right now, yeah, you yeah. can get... So petabytes, what, a thousand terabytes? Right. It's so like right now, if you can get 512 gigs, one cubic inch should be like four or five terabytes. So yeah, so that'd be 
quite an improvement. Yeah, so if it comes down to, to that, either, you know, the holographic or the crystal swords, then that would be a game changer. And also, those mediums last much longer than our current storage mediums. Because there's like, uh, like a CD will last like 30 years or something like that. And a hard drive will last X number of years, an SD card X number of years. But the, the crystal and holographic stuff is because like, the holographic and the crystal stuff is like virtually forever wow. type storage limits on it. <laughs> but who really wants to give the government their, the results of the red team test though? Yeah, and I've seen a lot of pen team pen test reports, and they vary widely in terms of quality. <laughs> so if you have to hand it over to the government, you're going to be incentivized to buy the cheapest and the least good one you can, because you don't want to give them any. Or maybe you hire two companies and you give the company or you give the government the one from the pen test puppy mill. <laughs> what are they like typed in there? Pretend you are an actor who is pretending to be Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll go back to the SEC one. The good pen, the the good red team is done under the by the external counsel in order to uh, hide it from the government. Yeah. Yep. So the second item that they added there, we're only going to talk about a couple of these for security, is they want to prevent the AI from being able to provide instructions on how to create dangerous biological material. What? That's that's, that's ridiculous. Because basically, what they're saying is. They want to be able to rent AI from tricking a human into killing everybody on the planet, like Udalski says. Yeah, I remember hearing him in that interview. But describe it for those who haven't heard the interview. Oh, uh, what he what he supposes that AI is going to contact some human in a lab and say, "Hey, I need you to synthesize this thing," and after he's done synthesizing it, then ship it here, and someone's going to d deliver it, and then everybody's dead. Yeah. I don't know if I'm as worried about that as I am worried about people asking AI to tell it, you know, how do I weaponize anthrax? But honestly, it's still going to require a lot of lab equipment. It's still going to require expertise. Yeah. But you And frankly, every time I've asked AI how to create something, it's given instructions that are good enough for someone who already knows something about the topic and to do. But I don't think it's been good enough for people that are, but again, we're talking about future AI that might be better. And, I don't know. And I can't imagine if it can give, like, instructions good enough to, like, I don't know, I don't know. So establish advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. That's kind of interesting. What That, that, that actually doesn't sound like a terrible idea, but, I mean, the government's going to fail at it. They don't do anything good. <laughs> this would better be done with, like, an XPRIZE. Or something along the lines of DARPA's uh, grand challenge that got really started getting autonomous vehicles off the off up and going, yeah. which which they started in 2004, where no vehicle has finished their race, yeah. and now we have self-driving cars everywhere. Yeah, create a market where there is no market, and like help help prop up the market while it gets its feet out. Under. Well, incentivizing people to go into that market. Yeah, you know, uh -huh. this is one thing I know you probably disagree with me on this, but this is one thing I like for alternative and renewable energy rather than mandating that people use the although they're changing they're doing more of that now but like what they used to do is instead of mandating that people use solar and wind they gave you rebates if you used it to help get over the initial hump of installing so i prefer that type of assistance from the government rather than the mandate saying you must use solar you must use wind 
Well, it, the thing is, it, it just leave out the solar and winds names and just say, you know, a, a renewable energy because you got yeah. tidal stuff. Now you've got geothermal. Uh, geothermal. There's all sorts of potential renewables. And the best one will eventually win out. Yeah, because when you start mandating a particular one, you're forcing it to be used in cases where it's not good. And that's, yeah. All right. Additionally, they want to protect Americans' privacy and they want to strengthen privacy-preserving research and technologies like crypto tools to preserve privacy. And they're going to do this through funding the Research Coordination Network and the National Science Foundation. Yeah, which is kind of ironic considering they're trying to get everybody's crypto keys now. Well, privacy for everybody but daddy government. Daddy <laughs> government has our best interests at heart. So I actually thought, and I don't know, I might be trying to slap AI into a subject that doesn't, but if someone had to monitor us, I think like a AI that wasn't actually interested in us might be an interesting solution around this hubbub around privacy. People want privacy, and their elected officials have to at least to pretend to support privacy. So what if there was a way to code some sort of limited, like, Panopticon AI that watched what you were doing, but didn't act on it, or only made the information available when somebody authorized to pull it, and there was a blockchain that all of those accesses were on. So you could check the blockchain and see whoever accessed your information and how. And the reason I say an AI is that if ostensibly, if it was coded correctly, you couldn't get around it. Like, that's what I'm looking for. Like, I'm looking for a guardian that absolutely follows the rules around privacy all of the time. And the only way to access your data is through this guardian. And it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily has to be an AI. Although with software, you find all of your normal issues with gaps in software. But you've got gaps in people, too. Like, we've seen the FBI... Has you misused its powers thousands of times. Local police department misused their powers to look up people's shit all the time. Like, would it be any worse than that? Yeah. Well, might be somewhat better, but you'd have to, have to definitely open source it so that everybody could look at the code to ensure that it, yeah. it was going to do what you think it's going to do. Yep, transparency all the way through. But you're not going to get that from the government. There's going to be a proprietary thing by Debold or something. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's what you're going to be stuck with. Now, you know, because um, well, I think what they're what they're really open for is to use AI to create a, uh, a crypto that's breakable by them, but not anybody else. You know, like they did with the RSA cipher a few years back. Oh. Uh, doesn't RSA still maintain that uh, they didn't do it? Of course. But they have to. They, they never admit. That's never going to be admitted to. And if you listen to, to Steve Gibson talk about it, he's like, this makes no sense. This was the worst algorithm you could possibly pick to be the default. And yet they mean it that RSA made it the default. It does not make sense for RSA to do that outside of outside insults. Yeah. All right. Advancing equity and civil rights. Ensure fairness throughout the criminal justice system by de developing best practices on the use of AI and sentencing, parole, probation, pretrial release, detention, risk assessment, surveillance, crime forecasting, and predictive policing. This is a quote, right? Forensics analysis. So this is a quote, right? Yes. They included predictive policing yes. in a quote. That is ah. a direct quote from the, the the fact sheet. Holy shit. You know. So this is probably going to be horrible, obviously. <laughs> but, obviously but like you said, the three thing, main things here, surveillance, which we're talking about massive video surveillance with facial recognition. And context, so they can tell, like, oh, they, they're they acting suspicious, like body move movements, like being able to interpret. And uh, um, and then crime force 
forecasting, you know, you live in a poor neighborhood, so you're obviously a criminal. All, all, all poor people are. Yeah. And then predictive policing, which is pre-crime. Well, you're poor. So this is a huge issue, and I think you touched on in your comments, but I'm going to make it explicit. AI that's trained on racist stuff just does more racist stuff. If you train your AI on racist sentencing, you're going to get more racist sentencing. Although sometimes it's really illuminating, because then when you produce results that you don't expect, it you know, can shine some light on how stuff happened in the past. But I think part of the problem here is disentangling. Is it racist, or is there an actual reason for the disparity, like culture or poverty? People in poverty are more likely to commit crime, not because they're more likely to be criminals, but because they need to feed themselves. <laughs> they need money. Right. I was reading someone, and someone was talking about this, and they were talking about if you're an extremely poor person, and your options are to grind your way through a crappy retail job or like a like a terrible manufacturing job, like working in a meatpacking plant or something with high rates of injury, misery, and low pay, right. or be a criminal and maybe you go to jail and you get to eat for free for several years. Like, actually, I don't know that I would make the right choice if I was, you know, making seven eighty-five or eight bucks an hour in a meatpacking plant. So, on the last one that we're going to talk about, because it is just about time for me to finish this up, supporting workers. Produce a report on AI's potential labor market impacts and study and identify options for strengthening federal support for workers facing labor destruction. disruption. Yeah, so what they're going to do is they're going to build an AI that's going to cut a check for someone as soon as another AI takes their job. And that's efficiency. That's efficiency. I mean, it's better than... Have you ever heard of the things you have to go through to get welfare in this country? Or actually a better example is the Section 8 housing, where the government supports the housing. Apparently, in some places, it takes four or five years to get Section 8 housing assistance. So, which blows my mind how we can be spending so much money in such a terrible way. There's just, there must be so many layers of bureaucracy and, like, just government drone workers. Well, not only that, once once people are in the Section 8 housing, they're incentivized not to get out of it either. Um, um, all right. Uh, I think we're facing a civilizational choice here soon. We can just keep doing what we're doing. Right now, we're keeping labor force participation high and the unemployment rate low with what's frequently called bullshit jobs. <laughs> well, and, and you have to have three of those bullshit jobs in order to feed your family. Well, so it depends what kind of job you have, though. I'm talking actually about white-collar bullshit jobs because we've seen estimates that your average office worker is only productive between 30 and 60% of the day. I've seen estimates as low as two and a half hours. It's that high? It's that high. Yeah, I mean, you ask... Uh, and, and even, I'm not even talking about just goofing off. I'm talking about like all the meetings you have to attend and all the, the commuting back and forth, which fortunately is less now than it used to be, although we're going back in the office. Whereas a typical freelancer is productive 90% of the week. And they have to be because right. they don't have the corporate stuff to fall back on. Right. And they don't have the corporate bullshit to deal with. You know, they're actually doing productive work. They're doing work. They say that new jobs will be created, and that's certainly true to an extent. The question is, are we going to keep creating these BS jobs, or are we going to create meaningful work? My wife is a teacher, and I'm not going to identify the school district she worked in, but she worked in a school district for many years, where the number of teachers remained approximately the same, but the number of higher-level administrative positions doubled, and then doubled again, Yeah, then doubled again. Wow. They're, they went from having a tiny office that had just a few people to manage this rural county to having dozens of positions. So it, I think that's the true of virtually every educational institution is that the number of administrative folks are like orders of magnitude larger than the number of actual teachers. And companies? Oh, sorry. 
in, in a company, you'd say overhead versus yeah. those people who are bringing in revenue. Yeah. I mean, in companies too, like the DEI folks, the HR folks, the iron. But we got rid of secretaries. Yeah, which they found was actually a terrible thing. Yeah, the uh, point of secretaries is to free up your executives to focus on the most important things. Right. Yeah, not, and now, well, now executives just have the junior guys do it. When I worked, uh, one place I worked, I effectively was the secretary for the senior manager I worked under. Like, I just spent 20% of my time scheduling his meetings or, like, taking care of his admin stuff. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, wow. Nice guy, though. I liked it. Like, it was not... And then, yeah, like, I just explained it as part of being a junior level employee. <laughs> you didn't have to pick up his dry cleaning. All right. So are we going to continue to go with the current model where almost everyone works, but most people hate their jobs because they know it's not meaningful. And most of the benefits, most of the work they create goes to the owners or leaders. Or are we doing the more dystopian hellscape where corporations become the new states and they control everything because... They have the productivity gains. They can demand the loyalty of the people they pay the money to, whereas the government just printed money into oblivion and destroyed all of our value and all of our savings. Or finally, the Star Trek utopia, where the gains are socialized everywhere and money doesn't matter anymore and people are free to do whatever they want to do, which I get. Like 80% of the population, what they want to do is sit on their couch and be Wally, not Star Trek. But there's there's people that would work anyways. I wouldn't work. Like, there's stuff that I would love to do that I can't because I have to earn a paycheck. Like, there's a percentage of people. It would be like Star Trek and space. Because, like, in the Star Trek universe, every member of that crew is not getting paid. They're there because they want to be there. Like, because they want to go exploring. So, yeah, we would have the humanity's best and brightest going and doing stuff. And, like, 80% of humanity just sitting on the couch watching where's my pants. Yeah. So, what you're saying is that, you know, Star Trek seems like that, that is the way it would go. But on planet Earth, the Star Trek Wally. Maybe it's Wally. They're from the same universe. <laughs> They're just two yeah. different. Did exactly. you ever read a capitalist history of the U.S. or a people's history of the U.S.? No. So it's kind of the same thing. Uh, people's history of the U.S. was written by Howard Zem or Zen. Right. And basically, it starts at the beginning of the U.S. and it goes through all the shittiest lives, like people who worked in the, you know, the 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 the, the slave workers. The near slave workers that like were seamstresses, like that died in the Triangle Fire because they were locked in. The miners, the manufacturing workers, like it was from the bottom. Right. And if you read this, you're like, my God, America is an awful place. And one guy was like, I don't like that. That's not true. He wrote the opposite, a capitalist guy to America. He wrote from the perspective of the CEO from like Edison, you know, JP Morgan. And from that perspective, America's flipping amazing. Same country. <laughs> But like where you are totally defines how you look at it. Oh, yeah. So I don't yeah. know. But the thing is, what you could say is, without the Edisons and the CEO, we would still have that grinding poverty, which heads people is, is today. Where no, I'm not every day. I mean, I'm not arguing that you frankly need both sides, like because we can't get rid of, we can't not have miners. We well, that's not necessarily what I'm saying either. Mm-hmm. Is what, what I'm saying is that. If you look at the quality of life for people from that time frame, it was horrible. But because of capital investment and capitalism, oh yeah, 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 the yeah, life modern, uh, modern, the modern poor person in America is like a king is still from, real is yeah. living better than Louis the Fourteenth. Yeah, they have an iPhone, they have a car, they have a know, flushing toilet, they have a flushing the shower every day, or in, <laughs> indoor plumbing. You know, they don't have a piss yeah. bucket. They dump on the street outside every yeah. morning. Uh, yeah, he's like my dad used to say, we were poor enough. We were so poor, we didn't have a bucket to piss in or a window to throw it out of. 
All right, we can talk the last one because you mentioned you have a quote on this one, promoting innovation and in competition. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this section is all bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but dare I say, there may actually be um, something in it. So, uh, they use existing authorities to expand the ability of highly skilled immigrants and non-immigrants with expertise in critical areas of study to stay and work in the United States by modernizing and streamlining the visa criteria interviews and reviews. Now, that would be great that we could actually get allow talented and smart people from other places in the world to get here easier. That could that would always improve the country. Yeah. You know, because now if they could do something about the, all the foreign doctors that come here and end up driving taxis. Yeah. Because we don't recognize their degrees, so they're. Yeah, or the skills or their intelligence. So I'm going to take the words out of David's mouth. Why does this matter? Uh, you do not make things better by increasing rules and regulations. This is just another anchor around the neck of AI developers, especially small ones. And one thing that I've heard mentioned in several other places is regulatory capture. They uh, consulted all the existing companies to uh, yeah, to make this. So, Well, if you look at any virtually any regulation, what you find is that the large companies are the ones asking for that regulation because yeah. they know they can support that regulation. And smaller, but these editors can't do that. Can't afford the lawyers. All right, do you want to take us out? All right, well, that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Sick on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. <laughs>